Welcome to the public morality. This is a unique moment in the American narrative. Though I hesitate to make grandiose declarations that never before have we been so divided as a nation, not with more than 600,000 lives lost as a result of the Civil War. But there is something about this moment that recalls the words of poet William Butler Yeats, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. To help us examine this perplexing moment, we welcome back author and Brookings Institute scholar Jonathan Rausch. It was two years ago that Rausch appeared in The Public Morality to discuss his latest book, A Constitution of Knowledge. I can think of no one better equipped to examine the present moment. Jonathan Roush, welcome back to The Public Morality. It is nice to be back with you. Uh, two years ago, we, we had you on to discuss your book, The Constitution of Knowledge. With the benefit of hindsight, how would you assess, assess your text uh, given the contemporary public discourse? Well, the ideas have, have certainly held up well. The book argues that we have a a kind of uh, an epistemic constitution, a whole system of rules and institutions we use to come to public agreement about what's truth and what's false. And it argued that works a lot like the U.S. Constitution because it it stimulates a search for um, for persuasion. Uh, you have to persuade other people you're right. And then the book said that that's under a very serious attack right now from two directions, primarily canceling on the left where people try to shut up um, others that, that they disagree with in order to manipulate the environment, make people think no one agrees with them, cause intimidation and silencing. And even worse, Russian-style mass disinformation where you just swamp people with conspiracy theories, lies, exaggerations, half-truths. And uh, we saw that in the MAGA movement, and it's uh, it's still very much there. The Fox News revelations have have shown the extent to which that was going on at, at Fox News. So all of that has held up pretty well. I also remember you used the term uh, often in our conversation several years ago, um, sort of originated with Louis Brandeis, um, the marketplace of ideas. How would you assess where America 2023 is vis-a-vis -vis that marketplace of ideas that you talked about in the Constitution now? Well, part of the message of the book is that the marketplace of ideas is, is necessary, but not sufficient. You can't just, the idea that if you just have everybody talking at once, that somehow miraculously truth will rise to the surface turns out not to work. And we tried that on social media. That's what's gone wrong with with Twitter and 4chan and so many other places and that you need a structure that incentivizes people to do things like uh, tell the truth to each other and take alternative views on board and that's the constitution of knowledge so the question really isn't how is the marketplace of ideas doing alone it's also how are we doing at maintaining all the standards and rules that we need to give some structure to that market so that voices can be heard that are truth-oriented. And there, I think the, the answer is mixed. I think in some fronts, we've actually seen some pretty decent progress. And in other fronts, I might mention Twitter, for example, and Elon Musk. I might mention what we've learned about Fox News. Uh, I would say we've seen some backsliding. 
Um, I would like for you uh, to define classical liberalism as you understand it. And then is there space for classical liberalism in the contemporary public discourse in your view? Classical liberalism has a couple of definitions. One is kind of narrower and one is broader. I should say I'm not a political theorist, so I'm not the expert on, on all of this. The narrower definition is basically synonymous with libertarianism, which is the idea of a, a, a limited and small government that makes maximum room for personal freedom. The broader definition, which is the one that that I tend to adhere to more, is uh, a society that that certainly does have government, and it can be a pretty big government, but it is a government of limited powers and one that uses decentralized rules-based systems to make public decisions. And those would be capitalism, free markets, free enterprise in the economy, constitutional democracy in the political world. You know, you vote, you have elections. And constitution of knowledge, what, what I've called liberal science, you know, this, this big global knowledge-seeking system in which everybody's looking for everyone else's mistakes in the world of truth. And to me, what defines classical liberalism is the willingness to let those those big decentralized rules-based systems solve our social problems instead of relying on politburos or princes or priests or whatever. I raise that with you because it seems, my view, we are in ever increasingly becoming a binary society, this or that. And it seems to me, um, my perspective, that that puts a squeeze, especially on the latter definition you provided for classical liberalism, your thoughts. What do you mean by binary society? That's kind well, of interesting. Well, what I mean by binary, you're either this or you're this. Um, for example, I wrote, uh, I wrote a piece, uh, my Sunday column, I wrote about um, woke society. And I said, before we can say whether we're for it or against it, we have to say what it is and why it's an why some perceive it as an existential threat. Well, depending on how you read the piece, I was either for it or I was either against it. it there was no room for nuance. There was no room for circumspection. That's the uh, what I'm what I'm getting at. And in that kind of world, is there room for the classical liberalism that you just defined? Well, that's, boy, that's a big and, and difficult question, isn't it? So I agree with you that, that we're getting more polarized politically, socially. People with, with and without college degrees have moved far apart, Democrats, Republicans, much less overlap ideologically and culturally than there used to be. A lot more what's called affective polarization, which is not just disagreeing with the other side, but thinking but fearing them and hating them, thinking they're a threat. And that makes it harder to govern under any system, especially uh, a liberal system, a classical liberal system, because a classical liberal system, it's all about pluralism, right? You have to share the country with people you disagree with. You have to try to work it out through compromise and you have to submit yourself to forms of political government like voting in which you might lose an election and you'll have to be willing to concede that and come back and contest it again the next time. And, and that all depends on certain values, which are just very hard to inculcate. 
And founders warned us about that. They said our democracy would not survive if we didn't have what they called Republican virtues, which is the willingness of people to, to really believe and practice those difficult social habits. So yeah, it's a challenge. Um, on the other hand, the there's in a polarized society, classical liberalism broadly defined, I think, is still the best mechanism because it's the only mechanism that not only allows for disagreement and dissent, it assumes disagreement and dissent. It assumes we'll have different views in politics, different views of truth, different preferences in the marketplace. And, and then it uses all of these systems and rules to try to make us negotiate with each other, talk to each other, persuade each other, compromise with each other. It's the only thing that does work in a polarized situation. So I guess what I'm saying is that the polarization, the binary aspect that you talk about is very real and very challenging for classical liberalism. But if if we don't rescue classical liberalism, um, there's there's no plan B. There's nothing else that's gonna work. What we have seen uh, is that this sort of strict orthodoxy that I just alluded to, that it creates this, this, this binary space is often accompanied by arrogance so that you throw the, the layer of arrogance on with uh, arrogance of certainty that I don't need to listen to you, Jonathan Rouse, if you have a different perspective, because I'm endowed with the truth. Um, how corrosive is that in our current public discourse, or, or is there, am I overselling that that particular dilemma? Well, that's just, that's just human nature, I think. We are, we are built to be much surer about things than we really deserve to be. And that's been a source of human conflict since the beginning of recorded history and, and probably forever. You know, think about the wars between Catholics and, and Protestants. Um, think about all the times that each of us has felt absolutely certain something was true, only to find out that it was false and then going right on and being just as certain the next time around. So it makes it it makes it really hard to advance knowledge and get along with each other if we're all fundamentalists. By that, I don't mean necessarily Christians. I mean, to me, what I call fundamentalism is the inability or unwillingness to take seriously the idea that you might be wrong. So whatever I believe today, that's absolutely right. And whatever I believe tomorrow, that's absolutely right too. Never mind if I change my mind in between. And yeah, that is that kind of, of attitude makes it very hard to govern a society and even harder to figure out what's true because you got to have people who are willing to say, okay, I'm going to listen to your criticisms of my idea, not I'm right, you're wrong, you go to jail. So yeah, all these things are very challenging. On a very practical level, um, I'm still waiting for uh, the campaign. Um, I, don't, I don't care. You, I don't care what what the offices could be dog catcher, let alone president of the United States where a candidate is asked a question and he or she says, I don't know, or perhaps, and, and they still get elected. I'm still waiting for that to happen because we, I don't think we can even accept, I don't know. Um, or on the other hand, those types of, uh, that type of uncertainty, can we accept that in our public discourse now? And if not, what does that say about who and what we are and how do we move forward if we can't accept that? 
Well, I can accept it, and I'm guessing that you can accept it, and I'm guessing we both have friends who can accept it and would even even reward it. And we, we do have to remember that that the most polarized voices are the loudest and the ones that have the most influence in our political primaries that choose the candidates. And that gets hugely amplified. And social media, of course, it's the it's it's outrage driven. So the most provocative and extreme voices tend to get the most uh, retweets, likes, and shares. But we we have to remember what the surveyors of a survey, very good survey called More in Common, called the exhausted majority. And this is the large number of Americans who are just, they're exhausted by the culture war, by the constant polarization, by the assumption of bad motives on the other side, or the idea that the other side is evil. And every election's the Flight 93 election, after which if our side loses, where our country will, will, will never survive. A lot of people are just tired of that. And the, the trick is to help them find their voice and to help make some changes in the system that will make it easier for them to have a voice. And, and that's really a big challenge that lots of people are thinking about right now. This is a hypothetical. I'm, I'm not subscribing to this necessarily, but, but if uh, one says, you know, the Republican Party is beyond the Democratic guardrails, we've heard that critique before. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but this is a hypothetical. If that were true, would it not also stand the reason that the absolute best we could have in the Democratic Party would be mediocrity? And, and the same would be true in reverse. So we don't we have to have two robust parties going back to, to the original premise from uh, you talked about earlier to, to compete in that marketplace of ideas? You can't have one outside the guardrails, another just languishing in mediocrity. Well, we've never tried it in the US until now. Maybe in the 1850s, there were four parties actually, and more than one went off the rails. But but as you know, the 1850s did not end very well. So I, I tend to think that that conjecture is probably true. And that is one reason that I have been so worried about the state of the Republican Party. The party is contested. There is a substantial number of people in the party, probably actually a numerical majority, who are still pretty committed to the core values of democracy and not totally on board with the stop the steal uh, election fraud campaign and not willing to excuse January 6th as a bunch of tourists who were set up by Antifa and the FBI and, and all the rest. The problem is, it's what we just alluded to earlier, it's that those people are not in charge right now in the party, um, partly because of the way things are organized. And partly because of the strength of the MAGA movement, which is, I, I think you you can, this may sound partisan or you may disagree, but I think it's an illiberal party, like a European style uh, far right-wing populist party. I, I don't think it believes in democracy except when it wins. And I think if it gets power again in 2024, then uh, that might be the last free and fair election we have. I wouldn't go so far as to predict that, but I worry about it. So it really is a fight for the heart of the Republican Party. Um, and and I, I think the outcomes are as you state. I think we need two competitive parties that are both committed to our experiment in liberal democracy. 
when you look at where we are right now in 2023, who's more represent? Who's a more accurate barometer of where we are uh, on, on 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 some of the downsides we've been discussing? Would it be former President Donald Trump or Representative George Santos, in your view? <laughs> I don't know. That's a pretty amusing question. Uh, representative of where we are. I would, you know, I would hope neither. I would hope there'd be some other choices allowed there. See, that's um, just that I'm not playing fair with I'm not playing fair with you, Jonathan. There's, there's no, there's no... <laughs> it's a, I, I have to chuckle. That's <laughs> to a more serious topic. Let's go to a quote from one of this nation's leading public intellectuals who wrote back in 2015. Why did politics once work? And why don't they work today? Despite decades of reform government and, and is more dysfunctional than ever, the country is more polarized and special interests have more power to veto reform. What if reform itself is a corporate? Now, if that uh, person were available today, I would like for him to teach that 2015 passage through the lens of 2023. And since I can't find him, I'm going to put it, I'm going to put it on you. And since it, and for the record, those listening, that is your quote. <laughs> so <clears throat> if the question is, how did those words pan out? I would, I would say, unfortunately, rather well. Uh, did I write that in 2015 or 2016? I, I, the date I saw was 2015. I wonder what that was. So back in 2016, I started writing on what I, what I call political realism. And I, I wrote a little free ebook. It's really short and you can get it for free on Amazon. Um, it's called Political Realism, How Hacks, Machines, Big Money, and Backroom Deals Can Strengthen American Democracy. And what it said was that a lot of work has to go into organizing politics. You don't want just everyone to run and everyone's in, in any election, and you've got to have someone to organize um, people in government so that they can work together. And you need to have some institutional memory and and all kinds of things like that. And that work is done by political parties and machines, which are fundamental features of every democracy. And in order to do that work, they have to do some stuff, which sometimes if you hold it up to a microscope in broad daylight looks maybe a little unsavory, like, you know, in order to pass a, a big appropriations bill that funds the government, they might have to add a few special projects for Byron Williams's district, or they might have to go behind closed doors sometimes and work out a difficult, complicated negotiation, because if they do it in public, everyone will take pot shots, or they might have to have relationships with different interests and factions within their coalition. And sometimes that might mean making some some arrangements that involve campaign financing. And you, you get the picture, I could go on. But a lot of what they were doing was the work of organizing politics and the focus of reform for the past 50 years has been to remove those people from politics, make it just all about voters and candidates with nothing in between. And the predictable result of that, which was predicted was, was chaos. And then in 2016, after I wrote what you just quoted, we saw that prediction come true. In the Republican Party, we saw someone who is not in any meaningful sense a Republican hijack the nomination 
In the Democratic Party, we saw someone who was not in any meaningful sense a Democrat almost hijack the nomination, came, came very close. And then we saw the essentially the laying waste to the guardrails and mechanisms of kind of the political parties and professionals and the people who kind of kept things in line. Um, and when we saw the result of that in the kinds of chaos and polarization we've seen. Well, that's a far cry from the backroom deal. That's a far cry from the backroom deals. Um, cigar filled rooms uh, nominated a candidate. Um, uh, I'm thinking, did Humphrey even, in uh, 68, did Humphrey even uh, enter a primary and he got the nomination? So, uh, so we've gone almost what 180 from where we once were almost 180 now i mean there were lots of mechanisms for public input and people forget that although humphrey hubert humphrey didn't enter any primaries they had back then something called favorite son candidates where you know like this the governor of the state would run and win the democratic nomination and then those delegates would go to humphrey so everyone knew that it was really a humphrey vote so it's a, it's always a mixed picture but yeah, we got from a world where you could argue that the, the professional operatives had too much power to a world where they have none at all. But we had a pretty good run there, most of the post-war era. We had a pretty good balance between the voters and um, the careerists, the professionals. And you want both. They, they work best in partnership. It's a hybrid system. You've got to have the voters. You want an informed and active electorate. Um, and you've got to have uh, some some ways for the system to be permeable to new ideas and new actors who maybe the establishment doesn't doesn't really love. But then you also do have to have the guardrails, the vetting, someone, you know, the the state party chairman who can tell, I don't know, maybe Byron Wilson wants to run for governor, or maybe he'll say, you know, you know, Byron, we we think you have promise, but we'd rather you run for county commission first. And we'll back you for that role. We'll make that easy for you. So let's start there. And they were doing that kind of work, and that helped create some experience and some guardrails. So you need both, is the answer. I want to I'm going to turn to some work now that I know you're familiar with. It's uh, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, which in many ways uh, I think remains uh, a very prescient text. What was written, what, 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, I think the article came out in 1989. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in one in one area, uh, I I do think that he I don't think he could foresee was what I view uh, is internal cannibalism that I believe occurred uh, sort of coincided with the fall of the Berlin Wall and that we no longer have an enemy, so our shortcomings you know became more glaring. Now I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Well, that's what a lot of people think. And um, I think there's something to it, that, that the country was able to be as united as it was because of the common enemy of the Cold War. And now that said, we do need to remember that how divided this country was over Vietnam. I mean, more divided, I think, fundamentally then than it is over anything now. I mean, now we're talking about I don't know, drag queen story hour, we're divided over that. Back then, we were divided over, you know, massive protests about people going off to war and thousands of lives and foreign policy. And then the civil rights movement, you know, my, my goodness, think about how that divided the North from the South. 
and blacks from whites and the shocking things that, that would go on. So to me, I think the biggest change is not that the country is divided because it, it always will be. It's a big country. There's profound disagreements and regional differences and everything else. I think it's that the system has not been able to respond as well to those divisions. So even the smaller divisions now over Drag Queen Story Hour seem like bigger divisions. And when I think about what it is that's that's caused us to have a harder time working out these divisions, I put a lot of it on the polarization that we talked about, um, especially that the parties are now so far apart ideologically. They used to be mixed around, you know, so there were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. So it was harder to just hate on the other side. So the parties have sorted and that makes it more difficult. And then there's a big thing that's happened that I think has really hurt us is um, the breakdown of the functioning of Congress. I mean, it still actually works better than most people perceive, but but nothing like 40, 50 years ago when it really was pretty good at cranking through legislation and dealing with issues in a way that brought a lot of a lot of different interests and regions and sectors to the table to figure out legislation to move the country ahead. And, and that was the big, the kind of think of it as the big trading floor, the brokerage, where the country could work out its differences and, and learn to get along with each other. And Congress has just been doing much less well in the last 20 years because of polarization and because of changes in the structure. And if I could wave a magic wand and repair one thing, that I think would help the country depolarize and feel like we're less on the brink of some type of breakdown, it would be get Congress working again. Wouldn't you also, um, not that I want to tamper with your magic wand, but wouldn't you also have to have space in the Democratic Party for Scoop Jackson and if you're in the Republican Party, Jacob Javits, I'm using them, I'm using them metaphorically, you know the yes, I think I think so for sure. Though there's an irony in the 1940s, as you probably know, a bunch of the country's most distinguished political scientists got together and published a report saying that the the parties are too much alike; they need to be more different. Well, they got that wish. Um, so yeah, it's a it's um, too bad that there's so little room in the Democratic Party, for example, for a pro-lifer. And there's really no room in the Republican Party for a liberal. Parties are different this way. Uh, the Republican Party is basically all uh, conservative or, or center-right. It's only about 25% moderate, and there's no liberals. Democratic Party is about 50% liberal, but 25% moderate, and there's still conservatives in the Democratic Party. And that, I think, is one of the reasons that it has stayed more on the rails than the Republican Party has. Uh, one way I justify that is, you know, look who they nominated for president, Joe Biden, who's very much in the center of the party and not a radical by anyone's estimation. And um, increasingly, you're seeing the Democratic Party is moving back to the center on issues like crime and the border and, and so forth. So I think there's both parties are more extreme than I wish, but I think the Republicans have, have gone further than the Democrats. Where in, in, in that last answer, where where would Jack Kipp fit in Republican in this current Republican Party? I don't think I he would fit. I mean, I don't know. Where do you think he'd fit? I, do you, well, can you I, picture him as a Republican? 
I used to think Jack Kilt was a conservative. I mean, <laughs> that's that that's how I grew up. I, I mean, I mean, I, I think I think the problem that Kemp would have is not philosophically was there's no space in really for happy warriors, period. So Jack Kemp doesn't hate the other side. He disagrees with the other side, but he doesn't hate the other side. And that's that seems to me now to be part of the prerequisites. You just can't disagree, but you have to see the other side as this existential threat. And and I think that works both ways. Works both 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 ways, meaning it's true in both parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, you think about someone like like Jack Kemp, who was all about opportunity and growth and cared passionately about poverty, uh, taking steps to relieve it, but doing it through market forces, very creative figure, very vibrant, inspiring guy. And yeah, I think you're right. There's there's no room in a Republican primary for him for the most part. And if he did get elected to Congress, he'd be a lonely voice. And the same is true of of lots of other important Republican voices from the past, including Abraham Lincoln, the original Republican president. And I don't know what a conservative is anymore, Byron. Maybe you can tell me. Uh, I used to think I understood conservative principles because I share a lot of them. I'm a I'm kind of a center-right kind of person. But whatever the MAGA movement might be, it is not conservative. It's got elements of a cult, cult of personality. It's got elements of what the president called semi-fascism. You know, its willingness to excuse violence, to try to overturn elections, to demonize opponents. Um, it's got elements of a lot of things, but I don't think it's conservative. I don't think we really have a conservative party right now in that sense. Do you? Well, you, you, you know, I, I think I think we have made the brands conservative, liberal, right wing, left wing. We've made the brands preeminent. For example. The, the Ted Kennedy brand was the line of liberalism. There's a lot of Kennedy hatch bills um, that are law now. So, so I don't think you'd have the, the, those types of correlations with Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch today. Yeah, just for your listeners, Orrin Hatch was a Republican senator from Utah, very conservative. I think LDS, um, yes, but yes. also a legislator at heart. It's another big difference. Uh, we are electing people who get through primaries now are much better at social media than they are at social conciliation. They're interested in platforming themselves and building their brands, to use the phrase you just used. And they're much less interested in doing the hard work of actually passing bills, writing laws, legislating, compromising, holding hearings, gathering information. And that means we have a Congress that is more like a place where you can audition to get on Fox News or MSNBC and less like a place where someone could spend a 20 or 30 year career on the Appropriations Committee or the Banking Committee trying to work on, on figuring out how to solve these problems. Switching gears, you, you referenced it earlier, and I want to come back to it, is uh, from my perspective, part of America's public discourse has often relied on a boogie person in the form of a human piñata du jour. Um, if we, if slaves are emancipated, this will happen. If women vote, this will happen. If, if uh, you know, if we, you know, don't tighten up the border, this will happen. If gay and lesbian brothers and sisters get married, this will happen. 
And none of those things ever materialized, but that's sort of beside the point. Now we have what it seems to be transgender students in the crosshairs. What do you make of state legislatures enacting legislation, particularly targeted towards transgender youth? Is this just another way to gin up the base? Or is there something more insidious, that's insidious enough, but is there even something even more insidious than that? Well, it's, that's a, it's a complicated issue. And one that I've been reticent to uh, talk and write about. I've I've only written one article on that subject, and and it said that there's a, a a strong need for moderate transgender voices to emerge because um, what was the LGBT rights, the transgender rights cause that you know I'm I'm openly gay. I was involved in same sex marriage from the almost the beginning, and um, believer in transgender as well, transgender rights. But there have been much more radical forces that want to kind of degender everything and have stuff like, you know, have genders like like demigirl and you know, fish gender, and have some just some very radical and strange ideas. Ideas which my transgender friends oppose because they embrace the the gender binary. You know, they are uh, natal women who uh, want to transition to the other sex or vice versa. So this gets really complicated because it looks like what you had originally was a pretty straightforward campaign so that someone could change sex and then use the bathroom that that they were that they were now living uh, but it's become something much broader than that coming out of academia which is this attack on the whole idea that humans have two fundamental sexes uh, or the idea that you can change your sex just by by deciding to change your identity um and and so it gets really messy really fast. I will say in direct answer to your question that some of the bills that we're seeing now in states are just too authoritarian and heavy-handed, and some of them are cruel. And gay people, not just transgender people, are in the crosshair. We've now seen Florida has a new policy that that you cannot teach about gender identity or sexual orientation in the public schools, even to high school kids. Now, sexual orientation, that doesn't just mean homosexuality, right? I guess that means you can't teach about straight marriage either, because that implies sexual orientation. Um, so we're seeing some some pretty dire stuff happen out there. Uh, and my transgender friends who, on the one hand, are thinking like the movement has gone too far in the radical direction, on the other hand, are are worried and frightened because they're being targeted. Parents are being targeted for seeking care for their kids. Um, it is it is a it is a bad environment. Well, well that said, I, I I mean when when I sort of uh, peruse the landscape of American history, uh, while your your critiques about how far it's gone, are, I think are very valid. Uh, I was thinking about writing about that subject this week. I think they're very valid. At the same time, when you enact policies targeted to uh, onerous to specific groups, that has never made this country better. And that sort of goes back to that larger topic we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. That does, that's never made us better in my view. There's a, there's a witticism that uh, David Bowes, libertarian thinker has, which kind of applies in this situation which is his definition of a conservative is someone who is always against every civil rights advance until they were always for it. 
And uh, and yeah, you're right. The, these bills targeting groups in different ways have have really worked out well. But this issue in particular gets complicated because you got children involved, and you've got what a lot of people think is a kind of a medical experiment on a lot of kids without any real long term data on how this is going to come out. And so there there's going to be some state role in deciding. Um, deciding what the standards of care, for example, are going to be for kids. I'm for the most part for leaving it for parents and children to work out and doctors, of course. But because there are kids involved and because schools are involved, uh, the government's going to get into it. So the question is, can we do that in a pretty light-handed way? Can we be evidence-guided? And can everybody just simmer down? It's not the end of the world. Well, that does that go back to what you, what you said earlier? Uh, we alluded to earlier when you said, can, can we simmer down? It's when do we simmer down uh, for, uh, in, in the midst of slavery? When do we simmer down when women want to vote? I mean, it, it, take, it takes time, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's, it's almost like we have to go through the same rerun film. And then it's only when we stop, look back and go, why did we do that? Why did we have the conflict? You mean, or why did yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm almost to 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 uh, go back to a uh, Churchillian reference that that we're always, you know, we we'll always do the right thing after we've tried everything else. Well, it's I guess it's the eternal tension, right? I was um, became over thirty years ago now, I guess, involved in the in the gay and lesbian rights movement, as we called it back then, and. That was the effort to serve in the military and not to have our kids taken away from us and not to be arrested in our own homes for just loving another human being and not to be reviled from the pulpit as the uniquely sinful, disgraceful stench in God's nostrils. You know, they never said a word about getting divorced, which Jesus explicitly condemns, but homosexuality, you bet, that's going to send you and your kids straight to hell. And I could go on and on. And um, so I went through all that. And and here we are. You know, I, I, I still, maybe Byron, maybe you called me a little bit naive, but I still think that maybe not in the short run, but in the medium and longer run, people eventually listen to reason. And that's, it goes back to the conversation we were having just a second ago. If we can slow down a bit and use our heads on the transgender issue, I am I am confident that the issues can be worked through. The question is, will we give ourselves time and space to do that? Well, to to I'm going to respond in uh, in support of your last statement to to share with you that in 1997 I wrote my first column in support of same gender marriage. Thank and you. I, and I based it on the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Um, when you read the opinion in Obergefell versus Hodges, what, 2013? Um, the Supreme Court uh, based it on the fourth, largely on the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. So it, 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 so it just sometimes it just, it takes time and change must always start as that minority opinion. And it can be frustrating. I think that's part of what we're going through now. But I did well, it get can, you know, I... Back. I recently reread Letter from Birmingham Jail by Dr. King, 
And, you know, people sometimes say, if you read that letter, Dr. King is, is out of patience. And in some ways he is, he is harder on some of the allies who are saying, well, you're right, but take your time. You're pushing too hard, too fast than he is on the actual segregationists who are just out there, you know, with the billy clubs. And, but what he's saying, as I, as I read through it, I realized he's saying we've moved too slowly toward justice. He's saying that our, our white allies, our moderate allies, allies in the mainstream churches, the mainline churches, they need to realize that, that this is a, a real emergency and do much more than they have. But, you know, he's still not saying, let's go out there and break the law. Let's start rioting. Let's start burning. Uh, let's start blowing things up. What he's saying is, let's work in the system, but let's work harder and faster. And that still seems to me like the right answer. And, you know, it's a pretty radical answer, because if you think about what African-Americans were going through, and I guess he wrote that letter, what, 1963, thereabouts? Yeah. yeah. When you think about what they were enduring, you know, we are, we are talking mass violence, state violence on a huge scale. Uh, deprivation of rights. It was a, not a democracy for American African Americans in the South. So there's actually a kind of radicalism in his saying we got to move faster, um, appealing to conscience, but not appealing to the use of force. And that's that's kind of I think that's kind of my guideline: work harder, work faster, be impatient, but also stay within the boundaries of liberal democracy because we all need that. You know, when you mentioned the letter from Birmingham, just sort of ironically, um, it was the clips from Birmingham with the police dogs and fire hoses that became an international embarrassment in the whole Cold War propaganda war. So the, the Cold War sort of plays a uh, out as an outside influence on moving uh, the country towards civil rights legislation, which I also find ironic. Yes, that's exactly right. I want to talk about your friend, George Will, who called you a friend, and he also called you a conservative, and also noted that in his view, it was when conservative language was attached to marriage equality that the issue became normalized. Now, I'm not asking you to affirm your friendship with George Will or to pose anything he said, but what do you attribute the moment marriage equality was normalized? Well, I certainly feel honored to be called by a friend by George Will, though I think of him more as an inspiration and mentor. Certainly, I'm, I, I wouldn't presume to equality of ability or status or insight or anything else with him. But he now I forgot. Now I forgot the question because I uh, I just said that. <laughs> he definitely referred to you as a friend. I guess. I guess my question. Well, is I would love. I would love to consider him a, a friend, and I do. But I I don't consider him an equal. I. Well, that's different. I mean, those, those two people, I mean, both yeah, that's different. <laughs> when was the moment, in your view, that marriage equality became normalized? All, all these things we've been talking about, and you, you look at all the fervor, like I said to you, when I wrote my first uh, column in support of marriage equality, I got a death threat. Now, if I wrote that same column today, it'd be like, you know, whatever, Byron, be no big deal. So, when did it become normalizing? I don't know that I could name a moment. I certainly share your experience. When I worked at The Economist magazine, you know, in London, big global news magazine, on uh, January of 1996, we came out with a cover article 
endorsing same-sex marriage. It was the first major publication, you know, news publication to endorse it. New Republic, much smaller magazine, of course, had endorsed it a couple of years earlier. Um, but the result of that was just bags of hate mail and canceled subscriptions. Um, it was the second most reviled article that they ever published. And the number one was the call for the abolition of the monarchy. Uh, so you get the idea. Right. And and today I pinch myself because 70% of Americans favor same-sex marriage. And um, the United States Congress just passed on a bipartisan basis a federal affirmation of same-sex marriage. And I didn't think I'd live to see that. I think, you know, the the a big turning point politically was in 2012. And that's the year when, thanks to Vice President Biden, gave a hard push to President Obama. You might remember that. Mm -hmm. um, Biden came out for it, left Obama behind. Obama's comment was, well, Joe may have got a bit out ahead of his skis there. But around the same time in 2012, same-sex marriage, instead of always losing popular votes in uh, initiatives, state initiatives, won a couple. Um, and then around the same time, the lines, the lines crossed, and suddenly you had a kind of 50-50 split in the country. And then what happened, I think, was a little bit more gradual, but but pretty, pretty firm, uh, pretty quick and pretty firm, which is people saw that same-sex marriage was not going to destroy straight marriage. It wasn't going to harm children or undermine the family structure of our country, that it was actually a group of gay and lesbian Americans who wanted to join this conservative institution and be part of it and be exemplars of it. And that this was actually a way to recommit ourselves to marriage. And that's that's the fundamentally social conservative argument that folks like me and Andrew Sullivan and, and Dale Carpenter and, and others made. And um, the results are as you see. You know, you know I have, um, uh, I, I use Obrick versus Hodges often when I teach um, when I teach the Fourteenth Amendment, and I talk about some of the some of that climate, um, and I think it's a uh, Obergefell versus Hodges or just gay marriage in general was a great issue to understand that the Constitution was not designed for you to support something based on what you liked. It's designed for you to support it based on the concepts that it articulates. All right, for example. You just trust me on this, Jonathan. I'm not a fan of the Ku Klux Klan, but if the Klan got the proper permits and wanted to pro and wanted to do a nonviolent protest, and people, you know, oppose that, I would be the first to write a column like, "No, they got they have to write the vote." So that, to me, I think I think that uh, Oberfeld versus Hodges sort of pushed our sensibilities to, to have a better understanding of the Constitution. Well, I hope that's right. You know, I worry that, especially among younger people, that that see free speech, the idea of free speech as basically a way for uh, for powerful interests to marginalize the weak. The opposite is true, of course. All of these civil rights advances and equality advances that we've been talking about for the last half hour came as a result of, of free speech and, and liberal science, the ability to find truth and, and to move that forward. A huge part of the advance of gay and lesbian rights was just debunking myths that weren't true, like the fact, the idea that we had some kind of some kind of psychosis or mental illness. Uh, it was it was hard 
psychological evidence that debunked that and led the American Psychiatric Association to rescind the categorization that gay people were mentally ill, under which, by the way, people were lobotomized, they were committed and confined, uh, they had electroshock therapy, all kinds of awful things went on. So to me, the, the answer here is to continue the, the fight for the constitution of knowledge, as we call it, which is the system of open debate and inquiry, but structured in a way that, that pushes us to seek uh, new information and to reconcile old facts with that new information. And, and, and that's, I think, I think that's the answer for minorities. And I think I'm living that out right now as a married homosexual American. Well, just, just keep in mind to your last point that when Al Smith ran for president, one of the arguments against his candidacy was that he was already making plans to have a pipe um, under the Atlantic built to go straight to the Vatican. So, I mean, we can come up with an array of theories, I would say like that. Um, finally, I, I, I don't know if you're like me, but I always say that my books are always better after I hit send, meaning it's, it's, it's only in retrospect that I can see where the text perhaps falls short, or I could have done this, or I could explain this better. Looking back, uh, is there something about the constitution of knowledge that you would like to revisit or you may see differently today? Well, that's an easy one, because the answer is yes. Uh, and I saw it almost immediately when, by the time the book had come out, I was I was aware of it. So, a, a core idea of the book, this whole second half, is about what's called cognitive warfare, information warfare. This is the effort by political actors to uh, to work their will by by distorting people's perception of reality. This is a very powerful way to win a war without firing a shot. And it argues that there are two big threats to this, of this sort. And, and one is what's been called cancel culture from the left, or I call it co coercive conformism. But that's, you can manipulate what people think they can say if you uh, make people intimidated to speak out. And that allows even fairly small minorities, people who believe some, some you know, really crazy stuff to dominate in an environment like academia or even a corporate HR department or a newsroom even though they're not really a majority, they can look like a majority if they can intimidate others. And then on the other side, you have Russian-style mass disinformation, uh, propaganda attacks, the flooding the zone with shit, as Stephen Bannon put it, you know, lies, conspiracy theories, exaggerations, half-truths. So people don't know which way is up anymore. They don't know who, who they can trust. They don't believe their own eyes. And you can then politicize them and demagogue them. So Constitution of Knowledge has more material about the cancel culture side than it does about the disinformation side. And that's because I wrote that book in the fall. I guess I submitted it just before the election of 2020 and had only, only the ability to do some short revisions after that. And I thought that when Donald Trump left the scene, that things would improve a lot in the truth department on the Republican side. Uh, Donald Trump is, I think I can back this up objectively, the most innovative and effective and dangerous propaganda innovator since the 1930s. Um, 
he's he's really that good and he pioneered techniques in the US that have never been applied before you know like telling literally 20 lies a day as president in order to obliterate the distinction between between truth and lies in order to set up the ultimate lie which is that he won the election so i thought okay well he's probably going to lose this election and when he does things will go kind of back to normal and so it would be it'll look kind of strange to have even a whole chapter on that style of disinformation. Well, boy, was I wrong. It has persisted. It took root within the Republican Party. You saw many Trumps, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and her, you know, Jewish space laser, to say nothing of George Santos, who's, you know, whose motivations are strange, but who obviously seems to have no distinction between truth and falsehood. Uh, you saw this whole style become deeply rooted in the Republican Party as people realized they could they could lie with impunity and they could get away with it and they'd be rewarded for it by primary voters who would see this as a as a way of kind of f u to the establishment. So if I had it to do over again, long story short, yeah, I would I would switch the balance and I would make clear that as as much as I do worry about the shutting down of open discourse and sometimes scholarly integrity in in left-leaning departments and universities to me the biggest most urgent threat right now is still the disinformation threat from the right well i will say when the second edition of constitution knowledge comes out we expect to have you on the public morality jonathan Rosh. <laughs> well you don't need to wait that long my door is open <laughs> the public morality welcomes your comments you can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org that's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.